Isaiah, and we'll start with Isaiah chapter 40. Um, <clears throat> the way we're going to approach this is we're going to look at an image of scenes. Uh, Isaiah 40 and 41 and the first part of 42 are picturing scenes before us of what's going on um, with God. It's a way for the people to understand in a creative and imaginary way. And by imaginary, I don't mean false. By imaginary, I mean they can image it. They can, they can make a picture in their mind. And you know, it helps you remember something if you can remember it as a story, if you can remember it as an image. And that's exactly what's happening here. We're going to start in chapter 40, verse 12. And uh, there, there's sort of a drama going on here, and that's what the prophets would often do. They would, they would you know, bring you a lesson, and they would create a, um, a kind of a drama, acting out something so that they could get a message across. The drama here is the, uh, the drama of the courtroom. Okay, so this is, um, we love courtroom dramas. We love uh, Perry Mason, and I'm dating myself, and then um, Matlock, and, uh, and I guess that, that really dates you. But anyway, the, uh, all of, you know, anything that takes place in a courtroom or takes place in the law, why? Because we think that there's important things that happen there. So when you're in a courtroom drama, we even have reality shows that are kind of courtroom drama. Because we believe that what happens there, first of all, you've got a conflict, you've got good and evil, you've got a right and a wrong, and what happens under the law is something that we all believe is important. So when that takes place, we recognize something important is going on there in big decisions. You know, when the Supreme Court every once in a while throws out a decision, we all focus in on the news. Why? Because we revere what's being done there. Now, in Isaiah's world... The, um, the, the politics of the executive branch, and this is a, not a fair comparison, but the king, and the politics of the judicial branch, the, the courts, are fused into one. The king is both judge and ruler. He's the, um, he's the commander-in-chief of the armies, and he is the ultimate authority. This is why... Um, uh, Solomon was so well known in that he could render good judgment, he could render good verdict, he, he worked with wisdom. But your king is your standard for all of that. So this courtroom is, is what we might also call a throne room. And we have the people who are in dispute, they come before the king for a decision to be made. Uh, and God is there. So the dispute opens up in verse 12 with these questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? This, these are rhetorical questions. Uh, the answer is no one. No one can compare to God like that. So there's a dispute here, and the opening uh, argument of the dispute is you cannot put God on any of your scales of measurement. He's not like anything else. Uh, if we're going to dispute who's more powerful, who has more authority, 
He says God's off the charts. You can't map God on any of your standards of measurement and evaluation. You can't gauge him. So no one in, or nothing or no one in creation can evaluate God or grade God. No one can match God in giving counsel. No one among the nations can compare to God. Um, another way to think of this is, remember that these, this message of Isaiah starts out in, in uh, verse 1 with a word of comfort. This is a word that is actually meant to encourage but also rally people who are in distress. So let's use an image of our own. I want you to imagine a team that has a chance at winning and, and yet they're, they're not doing very well and they're kind of disheartened and they're losing in the first half of the game. This sounds like football over the last fall. But anyway, the, uh, here they are. The coach has got to come in the locker room and talk them up. He's got to chat them up and inspire them and say, what do you want people to say about this game when it's over? You go into those kind of questions. Why? To rally them, to get them fired up. You know they've got the talent. They just need the encouragement. That's what's happening here. All of this uh, passage in Isaiah is going to be about telling the people of Israel, listen, you shouldn't be you know, too upset. You've got somebody fighting for you. But we'll come back to that. So the opening question is, now, let's talk about your relationship with God. Who's like God? And the answer is, well, no one. Nothing compares to him. Exactly. So, verse 15, um, surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon's not sufficient for altar fires, nor uh, its animals enough for burnt offerings before him. All the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. This doesn't mean that God hates these things and doesn't care about them. It means that they, they, their majesty and their power and their, their largeness cannot compare to God. It's almost a, a way of imagining God as bigger and greater than all of that. The way that we've done when we were children, when we say that, uh, you know, thunder is God and, you know, he's bowling. It's, it's, God, it's noise and... And God's much bigger than all that. He uses pine trees for toothpicks, that sort of thing. That's what he's saying here. You can't get enough forest to create the, uh, the burnt offerings that, are, that, are, um, you know, that God is, deserves. You just can't do it. So God, all these things that are as mighty and wonderful and majestic as we rightly think they are, are like nothing compared to God. And so in verse 18, he asks the question, then... With whom or with what will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? And now we start to see what the dispute is. The dispute is that the, the, uh, the, uh, the parties have been called into this uh, divine court to argue about God versus the false gods, the idols. And so this opening dialogue has meant to bring us in to say, if God is like nothing on earth, then how on earth are you going to represent him with some sort of idol? You can't do it. You can't say all gods are God. You can't say that these gods that are depicted as idols are just as good as, you, as, as the God of all creation. He says it can't be done because you can put them on a scale. In fact, we can even reduce them, he says. Verse 19, as for an idol... It takes a metal worker to cast it and a goldsmith to cover it over with gold. 
and fashioned silver chains for it. And a person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not fall down. He's saying you've got, um, you know, you've got this God that's all, and, and, and you know, often in these uh, ancient Near Eastern courts, you would have these um, fantastic images and sculptures and carving, things that were just, you know, they, you've been to art galleries and you've seen impressive works of art. You've been uh, in places in this world and you've seen the, uh, the amazing uh, ways that, that, that people with skill and talent can create something that's beautiful and amazing, all right? Uh, and, and that's what you would do. You would, you would do all this uh, to, to set up some shrine that, that signified importance for your God or your deity or your, your national symbol. And Isaiah is saying, wait a second. We've got, you know, minimum wage workers doing this stuff. And yet you think that's a God and they have to, and they have to make sure that they've got the thing nailed down properly so that it doesn't fall over. He goes, call it a work of art, that's fine, but that's not a God. And that's his point throughout this. Um, verse 21 then, you go from that, that parody, that humorous image of this poor little idol God being made by people who uh, can't even come up with the materials to build it. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to nothing and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. God's not represented by the things on earth. You can't compare him to the, to the most splendid works or the most splendid resources on earth. And in fact, you're going to find out we can't even compare him to the celestial things to the, uh, the stars in the heavens. But those things to him are furniture. That's part of his majesty. Um, we keep reading verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the holy ones? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. What he means is, you know, you look at the stars and, again, think like ancient Near Eastern people. You're, you put a lot of stock, you put a lot of value in this. Because of all the things in this world that you can't control, those are things that you can count on. They show up with regularity. They mark seasons. That's why we've got some of the structures that uh, around the world that are ancient that are devoted to astronomy. Because those things keep us, that's what we can rely on. You can't count on the weather. I mean, we've all been talking about that, even with our satellites and our technology. We don't know exactly what the weather's going to do. But you can count on the, uh, the stars. You can count on the planets. And they have a certain uh, regularity and a certain predictability. And no wonder people ascribe special powers to those stars. 
But here, he's saying, God, he's in charge of them all. He's, he's air traffic control. He calls them out. They do what he says. So if you can say, well, you know, the mighty objects in the sky, those things represent God. Those might be the equal of God. He says, no, no, even they are below God. And God tells them what to do. He calls them by name. He brings them out at their time. He's the one that's running the show. Um, so our petitioner asks the question once again. But this time directs it directly to Jacob and Israel. Because Jacob and Israel have been brought into this celestial court. Uh, the so-called worshipers of idols are, are there. But we find out actually that the person that's being brought into court is Jacob and Israel. And they've shown up with a complaint. You have to, you know, they're, they're, they've got a suit. They've got a suit that they want to make a lawsuit. And their lawsuit is God has forgotten us. He made some promises to our people. And now our voice here, Isaiah, is like the, um, he's like the defense attorney for God. He says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? He's saying, you have no right to claim that God has forgotten about you or he has abandoned you or neglected his promises. Now, notice that he calls Jacob and Israel by very personal names. Uh, these are the names that were given to their ancestor, Jacob. And it's who they are, and they're all reduced down to, uh, just like, again, think of the imagination that goes into this. They're reduced down to one person. And that's to show that God has this intimate connection with them. God made a very personal commitment to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. God made very personal commitments to Jacob. God is the one that gave Jacob his new name, Israel. And he did that after he got incredibly up close and personal with Jacob, wrestled him in the mud... Jacob got him in the, uh, you know, a full Nelson and made him give him a, a, a promise that, uh, you know, give me a blessing. And God says, you're going to, you get a new name. You get an identity, which means that we've got a covenant and we've got a relationship. And God even injures his hip that he'll never forget. He carries it very personally with him, this encounter with God. And... Um, and so God's bringing that name back up to remind them, hey, we've got history. Uh, Isaiah is bringing it up to say, you've got history. Don't you know? Have you not heard? Well, what? What have we heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He'll not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Now, even youths will grow tired and weary, and young men will stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The first question in verse 27, Isaiah is saying, God doesn't ignore us. And he says, he's suggesting that their problem may be that they're they're not talking to God, they're talking about Him. This morning in the sermon, I encouraged uh, everyone to fuss with God. 
What I mean by that is, rather than talk about God and what God's supposed to do and what God should do and what God ought to be doing, go talk to God. You know, it's just like we say with one another. Well, don't talk about that person. Go talk to them. Now, I can understand there would be situations where we don't want to do that with individuals. But why on earth wouldn't we want to do that with God? He's saying, go ahead and bring it in here. Now, the answer may not be an answer that we expect, and the answer may not be an answer that we necessarily want to hear, but it will ultimately be for our good. That's what Isaiah is going to direct them to. So he's going to say, you don't get to say that God's forgotten you, God doesn't grow tired. He doesn't lose the ability. He doesn't fail. He doesn't lose the ability to keep his promise. Now, you can't put a claim on him and make him keep that promise in your time, but he will keep his promise. One of the worst imaginations of God, I think, that, that, that we have among us, and I don't think you're going to find it very many places in Scripture at all, if at all, is that God is somehow an old man. You know, we, we've, we've got this idea of God. You see it in the, in the Renaissance paintings and stuff. You know, here's God with his big beard. And, oh, and he's kind of, and, and to me, that creates this image that God is this ancient of days. And he's, uh, you know, he's, he's rather been around the nursing home too long. And it's almost his time to go. And uh, that's not a really good image of God. He's ancient, but that means he's eternal. We still, because we st- somehow we have to keep in there this idea that God has strength, that God has power. He doesn't grow tired. He's not limited the way our human existence is limited. So uh, Isaiah says, you know, even young people, in the, people in their prime can get worn out. But God's the one that renews the strength of those who put their hope in him. So the point of God being so great for Jacob, for Israel, which means for us, is that uh, two things. A, we can trust him. And B, he is unlimited. So he is able to keep those promises. And that means that we have hope. So we shift from uh, this scene, or well, we keep going, but now the, sh- the, the scene comes back to court. And now there's a summons to court. In chapter 41, when he says, uh, be silent before me, you islands. NIV translate that as islands. I don't, I don't like that. It makes me think of uh, the Pacific or uh, Jimmy Buffett or the Caribbean or something. That's not, a, you know, that's not the image I think we have here. The, the, the word here uh, is for people living on the edge of civilization. It's the coastland. It's the, the ends of the earth. So this summons is a summons to appear before God, and it's going out to every nation on earth, every civilization, okay? People living on the edges of the earth, the coastlands, all of you are supposed to come to this court, he says. Be silent before me. That, that's like saying, hear ye, hear ye, you coastlands into the earth. Let all the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let's meet together at the place of judgment. Uh, So that's a formal summons to appear before God. Now the question is, the question before the court is, who then has stirred up 
this one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service. Okay, who is this one from the east? Well, from, from the vantage point of Jerusalem, we would track east and we would go over to Babylon. From the vantage point of Babylon, uh, which is right there in uh, Iran and Iraq, you would track and you would go over towards Persia. Okay. Uh, there's a couple of schools of thought on who this one from the east is, and it may be all the above, but it could be Abraham. In some ways, chapter 40, 41, 42, retell the story of God's calling of Israel and the history of what he's done with them. It's perfectly reasonable to see this as Abraham, that he's the one who's been called into service, and that's, uh, and that's changing the world. It may also be a good guess that this is Cyrus of Persia. Uh, in chapter 44 and in chapter 45, we're going to see a little clearer mention of Cyrus. We'll, we'll get those in the weeks ahead. But if it is Cyrus, that makes sense because Cyrus, at the time of the, uh, for the, for the exiles in Babylon and for the last group of exiles in Babylon. You see, remember, we had Assyria in the 8th century. We've got Babylon in the 6th, and the, the center of power keeps shifting. We go from one empire to the next, and these empires don't last. But everybody's stirred up about what that empire is right then and there at that moment. And Isaiah is reminding us, hey, this shifts like so much quicksand. It blows like the wind. He says, we're going to go from Assyria to Babylon. The next power on the scene is going to be Persia. And in history, Persia will defeat Babylon, the, the kingdoms. The book of Esther is set during the time of the Persian Empire. Ezra and Nehemiah are after uh, Cyrus has re- released the exiles from Babylon. But it's the, it's the force of Cyrus and the Persians that release the people from their captivity, but the message of God's faithful people is that's because God wanted it to be that way. God wanted us to go into exile. Now he's going to use Cyrus as his instrument to release us. So if you're in exile in Babylon, you really like what Cyrus is doing, okay? Even if it is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But the way that they see it and the way that the prophets see it is Cyrus is just like all these other leaders, every single one of them, and we're going to get to that in a second. They're just doing what God is using them to accomplish on this, on this planet. Okay, uh, so the question now before all the nations, because everyone is worried about this Cyrus, uh, he's causing quite a stir in the Middle East, and he's tearing things up and taking territory right and left. So who's done this? Who's responsible for this? Uh, He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path that his feet have not traveled before. Who's done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? The Lord says, I'm your guy. I did it. I am he. Uh, Who's responsible? God says, I am. Now, notice he doesn't say, well, it's Cyrus. I let Cyrus out of the cage. No, he's saying, it's me. 
And, and he says, I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. Meaning that it's not just Cyrus, but every Cyrus, every Nebuchadnezzar, every Sennacherib, whatever they are, God is saying, I'm the one who's responsible. This is all happening the way I want it to. Which ought to teach us a lesson about politics in the world, I think. That sometimes we get rather caught up in it and we think, you know, all right, one candidate or one person over here, that's God's will to be the leader. Now, we got to help God and vote that person in. Hold on. If God wants that person to rule, God's going to make them rule. If God wants that person to have a place of responsibility, then God's going to, he's not going to depend on us. He's like, hey, I'm calling all true believers to come together and vote. Otherwise, your God won't be able to accomplish his plans. You can forget that. Um, What Nebuchadnezzar finds out, what all these leaders find out is, is that Whenever and whoever's in power, you're going to do a whole lot better if you'll surrender to God and show deference to him and show honor and respect to him. But even if you don't, God's still going to accomplish his purposes through you, no matter who you are. And and this is the message of the prophet. So we we pick up in verse 5, and uh, the coastlands have seen it and they fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other. They say to their companions, be strong. And by the way, they're they're putting all their hope in the wrong thing. What are they putting their hope in? Verse 7, the metal worker encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes with the anvil. And one says of the welding, oh, that's good. And the other nails it down so that the idol will not topple. They're putting their faith. Here God is saying, I'm the one responsible for all of this. So if you want to know who to turn to, you would turn to me. Meanwhile, our idol makers are out there with all the other nations on the end of the earth saying, no, no, we'll get our God together and we'll make sure he doesn't fall down and he's going to protect us. They're putting their faith in the things that they can control and make and manipulate. Verse 8, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, you, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Notice how personal God gets here. I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners. I called you and I said, you're my servant. I've chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. And this will be the theme of the remainder of the chapter, the idea of uh, do not fear, uh, to remind them, to chat them up, and to tell them that God is with them. Now, Genesis 12 is the story that lies behind this when he talks about Abraham, his friend. And uh, in verse 11, when he says, All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Why? Because God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he said, I will bless you, and those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. God gave Abraham a certain kind of favor. Now, it was for Abraham, but it wasn't just for Abraham. It was for all nations. That blessing Abraham was ultimately the way that God is going to bless all nations. So when he calls to these nations on the end of the earth, he's saying, look, my servant Abraham, I called him from the ends of the earth. I called him from a place that nobody was really paying much attention to. You're also going to see in this what the early church saw when they realized that God's grace was going to the Gentiles. You're going to see that God's always had this heart for the people on the ends of the earth. He wants them to come to him too. He wants them to acknowledge that he's God. That's always been the case. And here we are, hundreds of years. Don't don't assume for a second that um, 
somewhere along the first century after Jesus is resurrected and ascends to heaven that God says, you know, I've been kind of playing favorites with Israel, and maybe it's time I started reaching out to these other nations. That's not a new thought with God. From Genesis 12, God has been looking at it that way. It's always been his. God didn't change his mind. The people had to update their understanding and look at it differently. But here it is right here in Isaiah. Um, Verse 13, for I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Now this is some strange language if you're going to talk to someone. He says, don't be afraid, you worm Jacob. Don't be afraid, little Israel, don't fear. Um, Some translations he calls Israel a little maggot. Um, And that sounds very humiliating, but he's saying, look, yeah, okay, everybody's ground you into the dirt, but don't you worry, I got your back. Don't. Be afraid. I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Now, 15 has an interesting image, and he's just moving through all kinds of natural images. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. Yeah, that sounds good. What's a threshing sledge? Um, I don't think any of us that are even used to farming have really had much experience with this. Uh, so what you've got here basically is you've got a wooden sled, okay? And instead of having rails on the bottom of it, it's got, it's got blades or it's got little sharp rocks that are stuck in there. Hook it up to some animal and you go around, you know, and you, you, you chew up the wheat. Now maybe if you've been to countries where they have, you know, very primitive agriculture or they have simple machines, you might have seen something like this. And you can probably watch YouTube videos of it these days. But he's saying, I'm going to turn you into this implement, this tool, and you're going to shave the mountains down. Which goes back to the idea of leveling the mountains, leveling all the obstacles, making a highway in the desert, and we're going to go straight through back to home. So, you know, the way I would update this image is I would say he's saying, I'm going to make you into a plow. That might be a pretty good way to do it. I don't know why he comes up with a threshing sledge, probably because they don't have such a thing as a plow. I remember that we had a few plows. We had this one that was incredible looking. To me, it looked like a blue airplane. And if we were ever, uh, you know, one of the things you learn to do is when your grandfather is tilling the field. Now, he didn't always do this. You know, he had another plow that had these big tines on it. We would jump on the back of it to give it weight to dig it down so there we are we're all jumping on the back of that thing riding that thing through the you know through the field while he's pulling it with the tractor that's the image here he's saying get on the threshing sledge we're going to go mow that mountain down we're going to get you out of Babylon don't you worry Jacob don't you worry Israel this is the 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 the, I mean you got to love the imagination of this he's not just writing them a pamphlet this isn't a telegram He's giving them images to get them stirred up. Uh, the poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their, their tongues are parched with thirst, verse 17. I'll make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. He's promising that he's going to sustain them through the desert. I mean, if you get us out of the barrier, if we chew down the mountain, then what are we going to do? He's I'm going to take care of you. This is going to be exodus all over again. We're going to provide for you on your way home. Okay. So, verse 21, now we go back to court. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Ah, 
Now God is identified as the royal authority over Jacob, over Israel. Not the king of Babylon, not Cyrus, not any other earthly ruler, but God himself says, okay, let's bring it to court. What do you want to bring to court? Okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do a little test. We're going to bring in all these false gods that are supposed to help all the other nations because part of what God's going to do in Israel, by keeping his promise to Israel, he's going to prove to every other nation that their God is no God. And by doing this, he's going to show that he keeps his promises and it's going to be a witness to all other nations that God can make things happen. That's part of the mission of God with Israel. You know, sometimes what the world sees in us is not that we've put our lives together and we got it all together, but sometimes what the world needs to see in us is that we're broken people who've been helped by God. We're broken people who've been healed by God. And we may not have everything all together, but we've got a hope that the world doesn't have trusting in its powers and trusting in its abilities. And we shouldn't be ashamed to share that. Sometimes we've... we've missed that we can't let the world know that we've got problems they have to know that we've got our act all together that's what's driven people away we need to be up front and say oh we're nothing you know we, we haven't done this on our own God has done incredible things through us and if he's done it through us he can do it through you that's the message we need to be communicating to the world so here they are in court all the nations are there Jacob's king says all right verse 22 you idols, you tell us what's going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know the final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you're gods. There ought to be a little pause there. And he's like, idols, got anything to say here? No. Well, do something. Do something good or bad. And if this reminds you of Elijah uh, taunting the prophets of Baal, that, that's, that's good. That, that's pretty close. He's saying, well, you know, let's, let's do something. Just show us that you're, you're gods. Nope, there's just silence from the idle corner. Well, you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless, and whoever chooses you is detestable. Now, there, there's your basket full of deplorables right there. It's just, you know, it's just, oh, it's terrible. He's saying, you know, that's that's a shame. And, and really, he's saying it's a shame on them. It's like, it's too bad that you've bet on a horse that's not even... I mean, this horse isn't even going to run in, like, last place in the race. This horse is dead, you know, and you bet on it. Hey, this, is, this is too bad. Uh, now he stirred up one from the north. And you're saying, wait, I thought he was from the east. Well, the north and the east, it's pretty much the same. He comes from the rising sun, which comes from the east. And who calls on my name. Here again we've got this champion ruler. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar. Mortar. This, this is probably Cyrus again. As if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning so we could know? Or beforehand so that we could say he was right. No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a message of good news. I look, but there's no one, no one among the gods to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. So in verse 29, we get the verdict. See, the idols are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Now, in Isaiah 13, 17, Isaiah had a prophecy that 
he would stir up the Medes. And, and Babylon was the recipient of that prophecy in 13. If this section in Isaiah 41 is coming from, let's say, a later generation, it applies to a 6th century context. And our, our man Isaiah now is, you know, he's in the grave. What this continuation of Isaiah, either this record prophecy left by 8th century Isaiah, or this 6th century prophecy being brought to us by the, the descendants of Isaiah, what they're saying is, Isaiah talked about this. Isaiah told you that this was going to happen. Now, is there any idol among you that predicted this? No. But God revealed it to Isaiah. God revealed it to his people that Babylon would fall and the Medes, you've heard of the Medes and the Persians, it fits. So proof in court here is that God's already explained how this is going to happen. Um, when we get into chapter 42, we, we come across a, um, uh, a passage that's very familiar. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's an image of gentleness. He's not even going to... You know, he's just going to kind of move silently and quietly and not even cause a lot of disruption. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the coastlands will put their hope. This is, okay, this is the first mention, which is going to be a theme in these next few chapters, of the servant of the Lord. Could this be Cyrus? Yes, I suppose it could. Could it be historical figures like Abraham or David? Yes, it could. Ultimately, what we're going to be concerned with is that this is the Messiah. And the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God, we start to see the expectations of Messiah. Expectations, by the way, that Jesus will fulfill. And you find this in the, um, the Gospels in Matthew 12. And it's interesting, in Matthew 12, verses uh, 15 and following, Jesus, th Matthew says this is just like Jesus because he's doing all these good things. And when, then when the people ask him about it, he says, you keep it quiet. In other words, he's going to move quietly. Uh, he's not going to, he's not going to have to raise a ruckus to get stuff done. Uh, he won't even, uh, you know, break down any reeds or snuff out uh, candles or anything like that. He, he's, he's just going to move intently and gently and quietly, but he's going to bring justice, he's going to be faithful, and he's going to bring hope. That's God's faithful servant. And this is where we get our first expectations in Isaiah of this Messiah. Well, maybe not the first, but it's very important. We're, we're, we're starting to see this Messiah come forth. So that then in Jesus in his own time he's going to claim these texts and he's going to say, like Isaiah 64, this reading has been fulfilled in your hearing. If 
By the way, the other things that are mentioned here in verse 6, he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. So the Messiah is going to be an example, a light. He's going to bring hope. Whatever, you know, everything that light means, he's going to be that for not just Israel, but also for the Gentiles. And to the people that are overlooked, uh, the blind, the captives, those who are in the dungeon in darkness, uh, people without hope, people who are on the fringe, he's going to bring freedom. He's going to bring deliverance to them. That's the Messiah. So when the Messiah shows up, it's good for everyone. Um, God is leading and directing the way through all of this. He's going to do it through his servant. In verse 9, he says, See, the former things have taken place, and the new things I declare, before they spring into being, I announce them to you. He's saying, just like we've done in the past, I'm giving you a preview of this. This is all coming your way. And so this, this whole section uh, wraps up in 42.13, and it wraps up in a song and a call to worship. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and all who live in them. In other words, you people far away who are forgotten by everybody else, you people who are so far off and who are forgotten in dungeons, the blind, whoever you are, the captives, everybody come to worship and let's sing. Now we've gone from the court of dispute to the court of worship. It says, let the wilderness and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. I mean, worship's just breaking out all over the globe. Um, let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands, out there in the coastlands, the far away. Uh, the Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. The end of the song says God's going to accomplish this. And it's not just going to be good for Jacob and Israel, but it's going to be good for everybody, even out there to the ends of the earth. And that is a very beautiful little drama in Isaiah. Uh, next time we'll... Uh, by the way, this class, I won't be teaching this class next Sunday... So I'll be back with you in two weeks. And, um, but we'll pick up in 14 and move uh, towards that because now we get a new set of images. And I will tell you, if you read ahead, keep looking for that servant. Keep looking for that servant of the Lord um, because that, more than anything, is going to point the way to Jesus. All right, uh, let's stand, let's sing. And if you need to partake of communion, that's ready in room 100.